0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. This is the your Normal Podcast, a podcast where normal people speak about the usually unspoken, and I'm your host, Blake Russell. It's a, it's a Monday morning here in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I'm dragging ass this morning. I, uh, my whole body is sore. I knew in the last few weeks I've been, I've been telling myself and saying out loud to other people, like, I'm in awful, awful physical shape. Um, but prior to today, it was only something I was saying and I I didn't really have a full scope for what it meant, but I helped a buddy move 2 U-Haul trucks full of him and his wife's belongings yesterday. And this morning, my entire body is sore. I even have soreness in my, like the joints in my fingers, which is a whole new level of soreness I haven't experienced. So once I kind of recover from this, uh, I'm gonna start getting after it uh, with moving my body. That was a huge wake up call. Uh, but before I get into the conversation that you're gonna have the, the uh, privilege of listening to now uh, with Naomi, I wanna reflect a little bit on my conversation with Stephanie, the HR journalist from last week. I encourage you to go back to listen to that episode. I got a lot of positive feedback uh, in that conversation. We cover a lot of topics. Um, she talks about like changing her career course and life course after committing a lot of time towards going into counseling, she switched to business school and now she works at NHR. And from what she was saying, she seems super happy in that role. And, um, she seems like somebody that really s- listens to her intuition and, and, uh, f- and just flows with wherever that takes her, which I really admire about her. Um, she also discussed very candidly her coming out story. She, uh, she talks about um, being a lesbian and like coming to terms with, with that and like the struggles she had with that um, throughout her life and then like into early adulthood, some of the behaviors that she exhibited as a result of like questioning her identity And um, she speaks very candidly. And she she answers a lot of my questions in in a very honest and open way. And I really appreciate you coming on, Stephanie. Um, And also, like, I just had all this like people were like, and and I'm not surprised because Stephanie is a wonderful person. But I had people say, like, Stephanie seems super cool, man, like she has her sense of humor. And like, and then I had another person who's a little older than me reach out and say that she felt inspired by the by the conversation. And she felt inspired to come on in the future to the podcast, which I think she will. Um, but saying that she had different perspectives than than the, the people that have come on to the Warnimal podcast so far. because um, everybody's been, you know, within probably 10 years of each other that's been on here. Um, so that's super encouraging. More people are listening, um, which I'm really, really excited about. But to transition into this week's conversation with Naomi, um, I similarly to Caroline, uh, she's Naomi's a social worker and she's somebody I've worked with previously. And she's an incredibly empathetic, kind person, super knowledgeable in the area of behavioral health. Um, just a wonderful, wonderful person. I I admire her so much. And for anybody that, uh, I want to throw out this disclaimer before this episode releases, um, for anybody that has any personal experience with neglect or abuse in any form, uh, I just want to let you know that some of the topics in this this episode may be triggering for you, and I just wanted to be upfront about that before uh, you dive into this episode. We talk about, she speaks very candidly about her personal experience, she doesn't go into details about any of it, but she provides her insight, and I ask some questions, and um a lot of this this material is about childhood neglect and abuse and then even um, some sexual abuse in adulthood so um I just want to to be upfront about that before you continue listening and if you, if you don't want to continue I fully understand and you have my support in that. um and I also before before I do this I want to also say uh that if you casually use the word triggered uh to like identify somebody that's been offended or if you say i have ptsd about something these are two pet peeves of mine Um, these are clinical terms um, that have been uh, somehow introduced into like uh into social media and like layman's terms and people use them very casually ptsd is like one of the most complex mental health diagnoses to diagnose um, and it's a disservice to anybody that experiences, um, tr- who has experienced trauma and, and, and has that diagnosis. Um, and also um, for somebody to become triggered from a clinical lens and not in the casual use of the word, um, it could also be a very serious matter. So try to the best of your ability to reduce that from and eliminate preferably that from your, uh, from your uh, vocabulary. Okay. So uh, I, I'm i really excited for you guys to have this opportunity to um, listen to Naomi. I feel like I learned a lot myself, even being somebody that's a therapist and working in behavioral health. I feel like I learned a lot uh, hearing firsthand uh, from somebody that's experienced a lot of hardships in their life um, and who has um, been a really resilient person and decided to to dedicate their life to being an empath and, and helping other people. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Be full, be sure to follow on Instagram at your normal, uh, Y O U R E N O R M A L your normal. Um, and if you ever feel like coming on to the, the podcast, reach out to me, text me, call me, reach out to the, to the Instagram or email talk about normal at gmail.com. All right, everybody enjoy the episode. Have a great day. See y'all soon. Your normal. This is your normal podcast, and I'm your host, Blake Russell. It's a Sunday after. Actually, it's a Sunday morning, uh, late morning, and it's about 40 degrees, which feels like 80 this week. So, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm really excited for today's podcast, but to kind of reflect on uh, the last episode with Adam, my brother. Thanks again for coming on, Adam. We got a lot of good feedback on that. Um, he has an interesting story. If you haven't checked it out yet, I encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, but this week, we all have the pleasure of meeting a really, really wonderful person. I feel honored to know her. Um, she has quite the story, and I'm ready for you guys to hear it. Um, this is a dear, dear friend of mine. She's a social worker here in St. Louis, Missouri, Naomi Denton. Naomi, introduce yourself.
1: Hey, y'all. Um, I'm Naomi. I am a social worker. <laughs> I have both my bachelor's and my master's in social work, and um, And I've just had, I feel like an array of experiences in my life and in my work life that's kind of transformed me into the person and the social worker that I am today. Um, I feel like without those things, I probably wouldn't be who I am.
0: Hell yeah, I think uh, I'm so excited for this, Naomi. Uh, Naomi and I talked on the phone for a little bit yesterday and we've been texting back and forth about this for a while. And if you hear ruckus, sorry, there's a cat in this room. Uh, he's he's, 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 he's been on one this morning. Uh, Mr. Dewey. So sorry about that. Uh, but Naomi, we have been, we've been prepping for this for probably a couple weeks now. We kind of been playing some phone tag and I'm, I'm happy we're doing it. Um, and just like all our other guests, I had you, um, I had you give me five words, a list of five words to identify yourself. And, um, I want to start kind of going through that. Okay. Uh-huh. So for this first one, I want to start with uh, one that I'm like, whoa, but I also don't really disagree with. Amateur comedian.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. So, listen, I feel like I am always cracking jokes, talking my trash, making people laugh at, like, work and, you know, just with my friends and family. But I also, like, did stand-up comedy before COVID. And, like, I want to get back into that after, like, COVID's up. And I want to make more time for it. I feel like I've always been funny and I've wanted to like do online stuff, but I've I've just been so busy with like grad school, life, working two jobs. Like I've consistently worked two jobs for like almost 10 years now. So, you know, I like to think that I am an amateur comedian because like I said, I just, I feel like I know how to make people laugh and I just say things without even like thinking. And people are like, that's hilarious. And I'm like, Thank you. (laughs) Uh,
0: I I know from personal experience, not only are you hilarious, but you said you are not one that I've ever thought like, I wonder what Naomi's thinking or I wonder if Naomi's being honest right now. It's like some of the shit you say, it's just jaw dropping. And that's one of my favorite things about you because you don't you don't filter anything. You're just...
1: I just let, listen, when I have something to say, I'm like, this shit's going to come out. Like, I don't <laughs> care who you are. Like, I'll read you. I'll read myself. to are in this.
0: Just, yeah. Just like, if you don't like it, take it or leave it. Like, I don't care. I'm my unfiltered self. Um, let's go to this next word here. Uh, wait, actually, one last thought about the Amateur Comedian. Where have you performed? I didn't know this about you.
1: Okay, so I'm from... Central Illinois originally. So I actually did stand up comedy in Bloomington, Illinois when I was like living there for a while. Um, and it was crazy because I was like the only girl that got on stage for like the amateur um, open mic night. And so, like, being a woman too, like, I feel like that also makes me want to like do comedy because I feel like it's still a very male dominated place. But, um, you know but I feel like I'm my own person like people love to just like compare me to like um Margaret Cho or Amy Schumer and I'm like I'm not them like <laughs> I'm my God, own person completely different like whenever I was blonde and I did it people were like uh, Amy Schumer and I was like uh, fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: I mean I don't know what it is about uh the world we live in or the culture we live in that every, it's like just everybody wants to compare people and like right. um I mean and that's know. Um, we don't need to get into all that but it's definitely like a an interesting perplexing phenomenon that's going on right now okay. um let's go with the next one here uh advocate
1: yeah so I feel like I'm always advocating for social equality and equity um I feel like a big part of being a social worker, which is also in our code of ethics is advocacy. And um, I feel like there's just so many different causes in the world. Like the thing is, is I think sometimes people think if you're an advocate, you can only be an advocate for one area, but it's like, no, like there are so many different things in the world that need advocates. Like you can do it for all sorts of different things. And so I feel like not only do I advocate for these issues that are going on, but I feel like I also advocate for my clients a lot when I'm working and stuff like that. I just feel like that's a huge part of me. Like I know you follow me on social media. Like I'm always like posting stuff and like trying to bring awareness. And I also try to bring awareness, like I said, when I'm in the workplace and like, I try to do it in the real life, you know, cause there's a lot of people that are like fake about it. But anyways, like, but I just feel like that's a huge, huge, like, part of who I am.
0: Yeah, I, I like the part that you, to quote, you said, simple or fake about it. I think mm-hmm. it, I, I think that there's a difference between, like, posting about it and, like, I don't know. I'm kind of a cynic sometimes. Like, I think some people, like, post about it and, like, want to bring attention to themselves. Like, hey, look at me. I'm a good person. Yeah. Uh, but then there's people that do post about it and then actually... it into practice in real life and i definitely think you're one of those people um and that's part of why i love you and i'm i'm like so stoked to be friends with you uh don't tell sam uh no (laughs) (laughs) uh okay let's go with this next one uh this uh this next one food connoisseur
1: okay listen i'm a Taurus, and i love to eat sometimes i eat my feelings as a coping mechanism which is not the best but I just really love food. I love trying new food. I love cooking. I love baking. I I love having people over for dinner and cooking for them, like being that hostess. I love just, I don't know, I feel like food is such a love language that it's just like, oh, I just, I love it. So I call myself a food connoisseur because I stay throwing down. Like, I'm going to turn little little Debbie into big Deborah by the time this <laughs> goes
0: over. I am. Uh... Whenever I read that, and then even when I listened to you talk about it, just now, I thought about one of the first times we ever spoke. And it was like in the little con- – we worked at a place called Adapt in Missouri. People have listened to a previous podcast. I interviewed Caroline. We worked at the same place. We were all three coworkers. Um, and we were like in a little conference area or like work area in the back of this office building and i was like pretty new and i was like watching some bullshit training video or something like bored like and then naomi just came in like a fucking wrecking ball and was like hey man like what's up like blah blah, blah. where are you from and like started talking to me before i knew what was happening i was like me and this person are friends but you were telling me like about every place within like a one mile radius that i should go get lunch you were telling me like about places in south city that had these tequila deals with these like burritos and i was like okay and i was like taking mental notes the whole time um but that was that was like one of my first my first memories of ever like meeting you and knowing who you were and you were talking all about the foods
1: yeah yeah i feel like especially when people come down to visit like st louis like friends and family i'm always like listen or like even with like co-workers or whatever the case may be i'm always trying to like find the new places like i really really appreciate mom and pop's restaurants so i try to go and do those more than like chains um but yeah i feel like i'm the plug when it comes to food and i'm always like trying to tell people like listen you're craving this i know this like like
0: really you're like a you're like a a human yelp review or something like you're just you got you got the intel right exactly I i can always count on you um so we have two more And Mm -hmm. I feel like they're kind of self-explanatory, but I still want you to, um, you know, talk a little bit about it. The next one I want to go over is empath.
1: Oh yeah. So I, I felt like I've been an empath all my life. Like even as a kid, like I always questioned things and I felt like I was always like empathetic towards other people and just other situations. Um, I mean, like I, I remember like being in school and like being friends with like people that labeled them as outcasts and stuff like that, or like trying to be understanding when things would happen and like other people were like, no, you know? And so I feel like that's always like been who I am. And like, I feel like I can read people's emotions very well and I can be very empathetic because like I said, like I've had a lot of life experiences. So for me, it's just like, well, who am I to judge? You know, like I would rather be empathetic and empowering to someone than just be sympathetic and are like not care at all you know
0: yeah yeah it, i definitely think what what i like about what you said is that you you noticed it in yourself at a very early age and i was recently talking to somebody uh, a close friend of mine and he was like he was potentially going to get a job that the school district that he um he's the school district's talking about hiring him as like a, I forget what the title would be. It would be like a social emotional advocate or something, but basically it would be like teaching kids leadership skills and about empathy. And we got into this long discussion about like, who gives a shit if you know how to do algebra, if you're not an empathetic person. Like, I feel like the world is like uh, getting farther and farther apart from each other and people are losing empathy and people are going to their own like kind of silos and they're, they're not wanting to like have anything to do with other people. Uh, but I definitely think it starts when you're young. Like if you if if it's set the foundation when you're young and then you grow up into a person that becomes a social worker and it, you know, or whatever. Like I definitely right. think it starts when we're younger. Which leads yeah. to the last one. Oh, go ahead. You have no, the No, I was
1: gonna say, like, I definitely think it's it starts when you're younger and it's something that's not necessarily taught. So like I'm very surprised that like I was like I've been one I mean like I think I've had some family members that I would say are empath are empathetic as well um so I'm like lucky to have seen that but I think like overall like it wasn't really like something that was like there was a spotlight on you know what I'm saying yeah Yeah. it was more innate than anything is what you're saying yeah
0: yeah that's interesting um I would like somebody to do a study on that that's smarter than me and see like what they find out.
1: <laughs> uh, um, let's like $25,000 and we'll get it started. <laughs> yeah,
0: let me just, let me just walk down to the bank. And, um, so, uh, this last one here, it's social worker, but I like talking to people that aren't in our field, whatever you want to call it, behavioral health, mental health field, social work field. Um, I get the, I get the impression that, um, there is a bit of a misconception about what a social worker is and what they do. I think people might think that like, that they just like fill people's uh, daily medicine planners or like they, they like hold their hands to the doctor. Like I've talked to people and there's just just general misconception. Can you speak a little bit about what it means to be a social worker and a little bit about what you do and the importance of the job in today's society?
1: Yeah. So I think a big part of being a social worker is like I said, um, is being empathetic because we know that like a lot of our clients are coming from different backgrounds, different histories. They're, they're experiencing different traumas, different life views than us. And so even though we may not have those same things, it's really important to be empathetic to their needs and be understanding when they're going through something. Right. Because like, if we're just writing them off and not empowering them or just being sympathetic, like, Oh, same. oh sorry. Like that's not going to do anything to better themselves. A lot of people also have like this um, view that like social workers are not that great. And I mean, I understand because like there's been um, social workers in different jobs and aspects that have not done their job to what it's supposed to be, right? Like there's standards set by the National Association of Social Work that um, these social workers should be following, they should, you know, and the ethics as well, but it doesn't mean that they do because that's just humans, like there's fault You know, like I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I'm the best social worker. I'm just saying, like, knowing my faults, knowing my biases is what keeps me grounded. And I feel like sometimes there is a lot of bias in social workers. There's also this white savior complex as well that happens. Um, Or, like, you know, people just see us as like caseworkers, the people that fill out, you know, applications for you food stamps, Medicaid, um, take you to appointments. Or, you know, they just see us as someone that sets up transportation or, the person that comes and collects your children, you know, takes custody of your kids. So it's just like, I feel like those stereotypes are like very big or like they, another big stereotype I see a lot is like when people are like coming to us and we're kind of doing like counseling, I guess you would say. And so like, they just see us as like the person that like gives that bad advice or is just like, "Mm -hmm," you know, and it's Mm -hmm. just like, Oh, like that's not it. But like I said, you know, like it's, it's taken me years to like develop the tools that I have now. And I'm very proud of those tools I've developed. I'm very proud of the education I've gotten um, to make those tools more developed. I'm proud of the jobs I've worked. That's helped me as well. But yeah, there's just a lot, a lot of negative stereotypes in this industry, which I totally understand because there's been people that have not done it as they should. So.
0: And it's, I like everything that you just said. And uh, something I was thinking about from my own experience being a community sports specialist at ADAPT is like, you know, I, I, I did that for like a year and then I moved into like an assess assessor role where I was like diagnos- diagnosing people. Um, and now I've, I, I'm a therapist and like I have a lot of fond memories of all my clients throughout that whole kind of span. But a lot of the time I find myself like thinking back on my time as a customer support or not customer community support specialist. And I, those are like some of the fondest most intimate like relationships that I remember making within my professional life. Um, and I think it's because if you if you truly are an empath and you genuinely care about advocating for people when you're, when you're kind of like going, like when you're, when you're going through that with somebody and you're in the helping relationship, it's a, it can be like a humbling experience because like, I, like we, you were saying, like, there's this like white savior complex or like it, it, people might think that you're coming from a position of power or like more ability. But I remember my experience with it was like, my favorite thing about it was the idiosyncrasies of the clients. And I was like, Oh, these people are, these people are fucking people. And like they, they, have their own experiences, and like they, this has led them to where they are, and like this is their past. And it was, very, it made it very clear for me being on the front lines like that. Um, and that's just what I want. I, I mean, I'm not, am not telling you anything that you don't know. I'm, I'm more speaking to the people that are listening. Like people have, um, oftentimes, really horrendous like upbringings, and like they're doing all that they can. And at the end of the day, they still fucking tie their shoes in the morning. They do everything that we do. Um, some people just need the extra support. Um, right. So Naomi is top-notch in this field. And um, I think we're all lucky that we're all getting to hear her perspective in this interview. Um, so, Naomi, moving on. I don't want to tooting your horn. It's getting kind of gross in here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I want you to speak a little bit because uh, you – when I first met you, you worked a really interesting role, uh, with adapt. So I'm going to like kind of speak how I remember it. And then you, you, you tell me how wrong I am. Okay. So I remember you, you would go, I think there was like three nursing homes uh, in the St. Louis area that you would frequent, um, with clients that were what are called forensic clients. So tell Mm -hmm. the listeners like, what is, does it mean to be a forensic client and tell me a little bit about your experience is, working that role while obviously keeping like client confidentiality.
1: So my role was I, so what was funny was that I actually was hired as a community support specialist first. Right. And when they did that, they gave me a whole bunch of forensic clients on my caseload. So forensic clients are people who were tried for a crime that they committed but then, when they went to court for it, they were found um, criminally insane or NGRI, which is like the more accepted term because criminally insane can be, you know, pretty like demasculating. Uh, like it's not like prettiest, but like sometimes it's easier to explain that. Like, I hate, like when I would be in the field doing that job, like sometimes I would have to explain that to the doctors and the nurses because they'd be like, what's NGRI when my patient was hospitalized? And I'm like, you know but like hey everybody's got some learning to do so um like i said i had a lot of forensics just being a community support specialist and within like three months of me working there they started giving me the nursing home support which was all my clients were forensic they were all in psychiatric nursing homes um in the st louis slash like in the st louis region i went to more than just three nursing homes There was like i want to say at least like I went to mm-hmm. and so I would go and I would visit these patients that were in these locked facilities and like I would take some of them out into the community I would go um you know just for them to like be able to socialize and learn how to socialize and things like that in a healthy way because some of our folks unfortunately um just didn't know how to do it you know and and a lot of my patients that I found out like were forensic I mean all of them are but a lot of my patients I found out like had a lot of trauma in their childhood. And there was a lot of like mental health in their family that was like undiagnosed, untreated. And it kind of led up to like them committing a crime, like when they were having this psychotic like, episode. So like I said, like it was interesting to hear that. And like a lot of times I would just also go in and visit them and like, we would just talk about how they were doing We would talk about, you know, concerns that they had. I was also advocating for their health. So I was coming in on their care plans, making sure that they're getting um, the health that they, like their health needs are being checked, you know, because sometimes in nursing homes, like it's very understaffed and there's so many people in there. And so like I had some patients that were cancer patients, making sure that they were getting their treatments. You know, I had to put some patients on hospice. So making sure that this was a conversation that we were having, that they were getting, you know, that they were feeling like up to it. It was just a lot, like there was just a lot to do with it. And I also had to check and make sure too that they were taking their medicines because because they are forensic. It's kind of like, once you become forensic and you don't go to jail, you go to state hospitals, right? And then if you do so well, and they're thinking you're rehabilitated, then they would let you into the community. But some of those folks that they let in the community, um, they're able to live on their own. And then other ones are somewhat rehabilitated, but they're not able to live on their own. So that's where they come in and they put them in these psychiatric homes. You get what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But so that's kind of what happened with them. And so all, all forensic patients have um, the of like this extreme probation that's the easiest way for me to describe it and so you know they have to take their medications that they're prescribed they can't have any alcohol they can't do drugs they can't even go anywhere that sells alcohol like they can't go to bars they um they can't gamble they can't even do scratch off they can't go to casinos and then if they have a history of like sexual assault um you know like committing sexual assault and stuff like that then obviously that kind of is even more restrictive with some of my folks um and so it's just like these conditions um they have to follow these right and anytime they are not following them um you know their forensic case monitor which is pretty much like a mental health probation officer for forensic people will come in and say hey man you got to get it together you know and if they're not getting it together after the forensic case monitor has spoken to them and I've been working with them, then they can um, get sent back into state hospital. And then that may take a year, a couple years, sometime for them to come back into the community again and to try again. Or if they're not doing that well, then they may just end up being there for the rest of their life, you know? Um, and so I had clients that had some behaviors that were not allowed, like, fighting other people, you know, our fighting staff. And so, like, we had to work with them on that. Um, But they weren't deemed if they were, like, doing everything, but their medication, like, just wasn't working. So if they needed to be hospitalized for their mental health, like, the forensic case monitors wouldn't be like, okay, we're putting you back in state hospital. They were actually pretty understanding, and they were recommending, like, hey, if you feel like your medicine's not working, and you feel like your mental health's bad, let's get you hospitalized. Let's get you stabilized. And then you come back. Um, so yeah, there was always something going on. I worked a lot. Like I felt like my patients had even more extreme mental health than just my community support patients. Um, and like I had patients that had really like done some, you know, unsavory things and some crimes that were just like really, really bad. And I had to know these things in order to be aware, to look out for any uh, triggers and behaviors in case if they were like getting sick again and they, you know, they needed to be hospitalized because it was just like, we, we want to keep everybody safe, you know? Um, Like I had one patient that had like sexually assaulted multiple people in the community. And then he also sexually assaulted people in state hospital, and then he sexually assaulted people in other, um, other facilities before he came to this one that I worked with him. And having been a survivor of sexual assault, it was really kind of hard working with him at times because he was definitely always trying to cross boundaries and be very inappropriate with me. Like I seen him masturbating, like he did that in front of me. Like he was playing porn, which he was not allowed to have. He would make really disgusting comments. And so like I had to put my own trauma and my own bias away, pack that shit up and not let that like get the best of me. Um and just be like, okay, this person's sick. This is, you know, things that they're doing. And like with that person, like, you know, I had to get the forensic case monitor involved and we had to set up ways because it got to the point where he was just like so inappropriate that it was just like we would have another staff member come and see him more than me or like I I never seen him in his room like I like I said when I went to look for him in his room and those two incidents happened I was like never again (laughs) we're done um but like he also had to get medication adjustment and then they also had to put him on like birth control so like he wouldn't like get erect because they knew like if he got erect and stuff like that like he could possibly um do that again because he he had like continuously um sexually assaulted people. And like I said, he couldn't have porn, but he was having people buy him porn and sneak it into him. And I was just like, my God, you know, but like yeah, I yeah. get it. Like he's smart because he knows he can't do it. So then he's like having other people that can go out in the community because he wasn't allowed out in the community. Um, he was having other people that could be out in the community in this facility like go get him. He'd be like, hey, you know, because he got some money from the social security check. And he'd be like, Hey, go get that. (laughs) And, you know, like, I mean, it's, you know, there's some, like, you gotta say, like, you gotta applaud him for trying, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like I said, it was just a very interesting job. There was always, always something going on. And some days I would see as many as like 10 to 15 clients. So.
0: Mm, Yeah. And I, one, I appreciate, I, hearing you talk about that, I, and even like knowing, knowing you number one and like talking to you from a work standpoint at work, I knew you were really like passionate about that job. I know, like, I know it extended your, like, it, 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 it like overextended you sometimes because of the number of people that you had to see and like kind of the work demands. Um, but I know that you like cared about those clients and I know that the work you were doing, you felt was important. Um, And just hearing you talk about it now, I can tell. Um, It was like a, it it was kind of, it sounds like it was like a mental, I don't want to say game, but like you had to do a lot of mental juggling working in that role. Um, Mm -hmm. But a lot of thoughts came up when you were talking just now. One, you had mentioned um being a survivor of sexual sexual assault yourself i don't want to i don't want to dive all the way into that yet i just want to like i want to put that out there because i think that we'll we'll cover that a little bit um but i don't want people to think that i just kind of like move past it because <laughs> right. we're gonna we're gonna talk about it um you're like what, we don't care <laughs> <Going forward. laughs> oh, oh yeah whatever no <laughs> um, so i i had some thoughts when you were talking because you mentioned you know, you, you explained very eloquently the, um, the meeting of forensic clients and like what these people may or may not have done and like why they're in this position in the first place. And you also mentioned that a lot of these people had like, uh, like traumatic experiences in childhood and like kind of some horrendous pasts. And like, it made me think of when I was working, as the community support specialist with adapt i remember i was like at a dinner party or a barbecue or something and i had just started working with a guy that was a sex offender a former sex offender he had done something when he was like 20 years old that you know it's not okay um but i was working with him and i really started to like have a likening for this individual he was a really interesting guy he was really intellectual um he he was like really considerate and kind and it was the first time in my life that I, I had uh, been in that position where I had to like be an empath. I had to like advocate for this guy, knowing like what he had done in the past. And it, I, I had all the kind of stuff you were talking about where you'd have to like separate it and kind of stuff it down. Having not even uh, experienced sexual assault myself. So like for you, I'm sure, and we'll get into it. I'm sure it was like 9,000 times what I was going through. But I remember I was talking about this and I was trying to explain to people at this barbecue, like, that I can separate that, and, like, I can still get to know this guy, and I can help him, and I can, I can honestly like him, and I can, and I was, and I was trying to explain that, like, he had, like, a really fucked up childhood, and, like, and who, like, we don't know enough to know, like, what goes into that, and, like, and, like, why somebody might commit an act that he committed, and, you know, and then I was kind of just talking in general about, traumatic childhoods and like what it can do to people and what it can present as behaviorally speaking when they're adults and i remember this this person who i will not name at this thing was like yeah well people just they make choices so and it like was very black and white and i remember i uh i looked at was uh, it a
1: barbecue
0: no it's oh, nobody okay. it's nobody that you know i don't think Okay. Um, I, was like,
1: I could I could see one of her past co-workers saying some shit like that. Like, fuck,
0: fuck all that. Uh, yeah. I, I, like, immediately got filled with rage. Um, like, rage. I felt rage. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I looked at Sam, and, uh, my girlfriend, and I remember her looking at me, and we had, like, this unspoken, like, we gotta get the fuck out of here right now. And I just got out of there. Um, and the reason I bring that up, I... I just it just goes into what we were talking about earlier. Like people need to like, people need to think more critically, and people need to think with more empathy. Like, I'm not I'm not advocating for somebody committing sex crimes. That's a horrendous act. That's horrible. Um, but sometimes there's things that are like bigger than all of us that go into that, and they've gone through whatever they've gone through. And at the end of the day, like this guy was like 30 years removed from this one thing that he had done. And um he's still a person at the end of the day, and he needs his basic needs met. And I just, I, again, I'm not, I'm not advocating for s- sexual assault right. <laughs> by any means, but I just, it's, I overall, um, I just,
1: you can ahead. say, love the sinner, hate the sin. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like that saying, like love the sinner, hate the sin. Like you can. I totally get it. Cause we're not, it's not like we're condoning it. Like right, what they did was bad. It was terrible. It's put trauma on somebody else. However, they still like need support to be rehabilitated in order to like make decisions in their lives that they're not going to repeat. Like you can still appreciate those people and be like, okay, yeah, they did some things that was like, ugh, but like, it doesn't mean you know like they're going to do it again or like you know or like i'm just okay with what they did that's not the case at all like that's what social work is about is like helping it's not just about helping victims it's also about helping people that have committed you know acts and things like that like you ca- you can't just choose you can't be like i'm only going to work with these people like that's not okay yeah, <laughs> not at all and
0: It it speaks to um, something I really want to kind of illustrate for listeners that are not in our field and are less aware, like abuse and neglect and any form of abuse, physical, sexual. It's like it's so deep seated that it can span across generations, like somebody experiences it as a kid and then they grow up and it's still being studied, but then they become abusers themselves, and it's this, like, endless cycle, and people are still studying it, and it's, but oftentimes, it's not that somebody's just a horrible monster. Um, what they did is a horrendous act, like you said, hate the, love the sinner, hate the sin, um, but it's just that they maybe have been victims themselves, not, not, at, not all cases, that's the case, um, right. but there's a lot that goes into it, so I, I just want people to think more critically and in general have more empathy god damn it okay so <laughs> uh so um at this point of the interview we can go a lot of ways um but i want to know a little bit we're about halfway through this thing okay we're like
1: halfway. Okay. Uh, sorry for I, on hazel a lot i just i love to love this dog i don't know if you guys can see her but she's show cool. pick, pick up her head pick up her head i want people to see her <laughs> this is hazel she's like
0: have you ever seen homeward she's bound uh no (laughs) uh well for anybody that has seen homeward bound it looks like the dog in that movie i don't remember the dog's name maybe chance i don't know she's a cute dog i'm happy she's here
1: yeah Uh, like doing weird hand movements or going like that it's because i'm just loving on her
0: (laughs) i don't blame you uh so before we dive into kind of some of the topics that we are going to get into um i want you to talk a little bit about like you mentioned that you're from illinois talk a little bit about where you're from, and then um, you can kind of go into whatever you want to go into from there.
1: I'm from Illinois. No, (laughs) no. So I'm from central Illinois. I'm originally um, from Decatur, Illinois, which is like very much central, um, like 45 minutes away from Springfield, the capital. Um, So I'm from there. It's very um, a weird, it's, it's not weird. That's, That's my opinion, that's my bias. So Central Illinois has like a mix of both conservatives and Democrats. So I think that kind of like reflects how people respond to different things in that area. I feel like there's almost more conservative. So like for me, having grown up in this like conservative area, I always felt out of place, especially because like um, both of my parents were um, addicts. So both of my parents are alcoholics. And they actually met in rehab. And my mom was addicted to not only alcohol, but other drugs as well. And so like growing up in that area, you know, like, and then when my mom and dad were married and then, you know, my mom would have relapses and then have issues with her mental health due to her past trauma that she experienced as a kid, like people around me didn't really get it. You know what I'm saying? Like they were like, just pray and it'll go away. And I'm like, no, like trauma doesn't just go away with prayers. And I'm, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, not being like Christianity or anything like that. Like, I just believe that like, you can believe in God and everything, but like, you still have to do some of the work yourself, you know, like, and like I said, in, in that area, it was very much like, just pray it away and that was not the case. Um, And we grew up poor. So I have five biological siblings and we, my parents were poor, you know, they didn't go to college. Like my mom was 11 years older than my dad and she had struggled with her addiction since she was 12 years old. And my dad was about the same. And so they never went to college. Um, you know, and like I said, with my mom, like, you know, relaxing at times because of her mental health, like I said, she experienced a lot of trauma. Whereas like my dad, I think he was just, um, an addict because like of genes, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like for like a coping mechanism. It was more like, I like it and I can't stop. Whereas like my mom, it was like her coping mechanism. So like I said, they both didn't have education. Um, They had six kids and, you know, they didn't know how to manage funding and stuff like that. So we grew up very poor. Um, When my mom and dad divorced and my mom got custody, Of us, we lived in a homeless shelter for a while, and then we lived in Section 8. And so, you know, that was just what it was. Like, my mom was on, like, a lot of welfare and things like that. And then when my mom's drug usage got so bad that she couldn't take, you know, care of us, um, especially me and my little sister, my dad got custody of us again. And then, you know, like we lived with him and my grandparents for a while because my dad didn't have money. He didn't have a place to go. And then, you know, we lived in a trailer and I remember like my dad, like being proud to like make 30,000 a year, you know, as a truck driver and like, that's nothing. And, but like, you know, he didn't get any assistance, which was crazy to me. It's still crazy. These guidelines that the States have for assistance, because it was just like, He's raising kids, you know, he's raising three kids on his own. He's not getting any assistance. Like we didn't have any health insurance. We didn't get food stamps. I remember getting a working permit when I was 14 so I could work. I remember, you know, helping, helping pay bills, buying my own stuff. Um, You know, like I had to be very independent and like very much an adult, even though I was like 15, 16. I remember being 16 And going to school full time, being in honor society, being in the top 10 of my class with my grades, taking care of my little sister, babysitting my two cousins, and then working at least 20 to 30 hours a week. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, like, um, and my dad, like I said, you know, during part of that time, he did like driving across the Uh, truck driving across the US, you know, so like, you know, there'd be days where it'd just be me and my little sister in the house, you know? And so, and like I said, and while that was happening, my mom was just out doing her own thing. And then, um, I graduated high school and a month after I graduated high school, I was 18. Um, my mom passed away. She, um, had a stroke and, I think it was probably due to drugs usage, you know, uh, cause she had had a lot of health issues because like I said, my mom, she passed when she was like 53. Right. And she'd been using drugs and alcohol since she was 12. So she had hepatitis C, she had cirrhosis of the liver. She had open heart surgery done twice. She had brain stents, you know, so she was on medication and then she was also like using and stuff. So It was a lot, you know, and like, I remember I spent my first year doing a community college so I wouldn't have to pay for it because I I got the Pell Grant um, and like taking care of, you know, my little sister, because like I said, you know, my mom had just died literally. So what was crazy was like, (sighs) I graduated high school in May and then I started community college in June. And then right as I started, like towards the end of the month of June, And like I said, this was like my first month of college. Like my mom dies, you know? So it was just like fucking nuts. Like, and like I said, you know, and so like, I felt like I had this weird relationship with my little sister anyways, of being like a mom to her at times. And then like, you know, like my dad, he's sober and he's been sober for over 30 some years. But I think sometimes he still has like that mentality to like get addicted. hazel um, to get addicted to things like he's I mean like he gets addicted to sugar and smoking cigarettes and gambling and stuff like that. So like even though he's sober, sometimes I think he still like has that dry drunk and like my dad's not the best with emotions, you know. So like seeing that and then having you know some other siblings um, struggle with their substance use. I have one sister that's sober now. Um, and you know, my siblings struggling with their mental health along with me, because like I said, you know, our parents, our family was poor and, um, you know, like my mom was abusive and, um, things. And my dad was like very verbally abusive as well. Like, cause they just didn't know how to parent, you know? And like I said, I think they, they love us in our own way, but you know, I also think they struggled with showing it. Like my dad now is a lot better about things cause he's older, but he still like has a temper. And so like, sometimes I feel like I can go to him and other times I can't, you know, and, and I feel like that's just, that's what it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. And so I feel like all of those circumstances is what made me into the social worker and the person I am today. Right. You know, like I remember living with my mom and us having a caseworker like I, you know, like I remember us taking the bus. Like I remember, you know, like like I said, and then I remember when I lived with my dad, like, you know, like me being one of the poorest kids in my high school and, um, you know, people like shitting on me because of it. And like, you know, I think about other clients that have had a similar upbringing to like mine. And that, you know, have been still been in the cycle of poverty and then have, you know, turned to substance abuse and other coping mechanisms. And it's like, I could have easily done that too. I could have easily been that person. I don't know why. I mean, maybe my resiliency is what caused me to not go down that path. Um, me wanting something different, but I could have easily, I mean, you look at it, like both of my parents are addicts, like what I that's like a 99% chance I could have been one, you know, like.
0: Easily. How did you, how did you cope? Like, like good ways, bad ways. Like how do you, I mean, have you reflected on that?
1: Um, so I struggled with anxiety and PTSD really badly. And I still have these diagnosis now that I have to keep in check. I see a therapist, I take medicine. I do hope I do really good coping mechanisms now, like deep breathing meditations, grounding techniques, exercising, just stuff like that. But when I was a kid, you know, um, we didn't have resources to therapy and like, you know, like my dad's side of the family was kind of against medicine, you know, um, and things like that. Like we didn't go to the doctors unless if, you know, we absolutely had to. So as a kid I had, and as a teenager, I had fucking terrible, terrible anxiety because it was unmanaged, untreated. And I would try to like, you know, walk, go on walks. I remember trying to go on walks at night, um, you know, trying to read, but because I didn't understand what was going on, I thought I was crazy. And I remember I seen this guy that lived like down the street from us and he was a therapist. I remember, um, Mr. Moore, like he gave me three free therapy because he knew like I had been through a lot of shit. And we did EMDR as well, but I didn't get into that until I was 17, 18, you know, and then when my mom finally died at 18, then I finally made the choice to try an SSRI for my mental health. And then I started doing um, therapy through college because they had free therapists at college. So that's what I did. But I mean, like the first year that my mom died, like I... So I was like struggling with it and I had always been opposed to like drinking and stuff because like when I was a kid, my mom used to make me drink with her. I remember being in fourth and fifth grade and my mom like making me drink with her um, and telling me like I couldn't tell my siblings because I had drank with her. So then I was going to get in trouble for it. So, like, I grew up being afraid of it, like, in my teenage years while, like, all my friends are, like, partying, you know? Like, I was like, oh, my God. So then when she died, like, I got, like, I started drinking, but it wasn't, like, out of hand. It wasn't like I was doing it every day, but I just noticed I didn't like it because I blacked out a couple times on SSRIs with that, right? And there was a couple times where it was just, like, I was crying and screaming the entire time because it was just, like what the fuck do you do with this trauma? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you mourn somebody that has already been dead to you because of their actions and stuff like that? Like before my mom passed, I hadn't seen her for four years. So the last time I seen her, I was 14. I had to make that decision that like, I wasn't going to see her again because she kept using and then blaming her usage on us, her kids and her relapse and stuff. And it was too much for me that I was like, I can't fucking do this. And I was 14. Like, I don't think any 14-year-old should have to make that fucking decision. I don't care who you are. Like, that's, and I look back at that and I'm like, wow. Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, So, like I said, like, that has all made me who I am today.
0: I think what is interesting about what you said, and I think people should realize is that it is a possibility to mourn somebody that's still living and that this entire situation that you're describing is like a prime example of how that could be like you made the decision like this is not okay for me anymore like i can't do this anymore um and you just like mentally kind of turn that would you say it's just like you kind of turned a switch like it's not like you didn't like you know, you didn't have love for your mom, but you just kind of turned the switch that like, okay, this, I'm separating myself from this now. Yeah, And you were, four, I, and you were 14.
1: I stopped making phone calls. Um, I stopped visiting her. Like she would, like my sisters would still see her, but then they would come back and sometimes they would be pretty distraught because, you know, like it's upsetting. It's upsetting to see someone that you love, struggle with their mental health and then struggle, struggle with their substance abuse. And then they can be manipulative at time, like. Don't get me wrong. My mom had some good qualities in her. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to shit on her. Like she had some good qualities, but like, she just didn't know how to heal herself and how to be good to herself that it kind of like oozed out into her other relationships. And for me, I was like, I can't do this. So it was just, it was very much like, that's it. I'm done with phone calls. I'm done seeing you. If you're coming to see my sisters, I'm out. I'm not coming to see you on holidays. Like it was very much, I had to like put in boundaries, but very, 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 very harsh boundaries. Like, like I had to cold Turkey, that bad boy. And that's what I do now, even as an adult, when I have, you know, people that aren't good for me and I know they're not like I put in those boundaries and I'm like, all right, we're done. We're done. I I think too, what, what is kind of
0: perplexing, um, I don't have firsthand experience, um, with, um, at least to the extent that you're describing with like trauma related to like my parents and their behaviors. Um, But what's interesting to me is I would be willing to bet that you have a ton of really positive memories about your mom too. Um, And I think that 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 probably contributes a lot to why it's so fucking difficult to create boundaries like you did, because I bet you could list off like boom, 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 all the positive stuff along with all the stuff you're describing as traumatic. Um would you say that that is like fair what I'm saying?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I struggled because like, you know, like me and my mom, like we did a lot of cool shit. Like my mom was funny. My mom was loving at, you know, when she could be. You know, I remember like us like skipping school to hang out. Like my mom would take us out to lunch, you know, like we would just skip school and stay home with her like I remember Christmas being like one of her favorite holidays. And my mom is actually Czechoslovakian Mm. and her. So what's funny is that like her grandparents or great grandparents immigrated to the U.S. before the country split up. And so like, you know, like we did some Christmas traditions like St. Nick, you know, um, things like that like it was just like the, i like i remember those like things and that's why it was it and that's why i think i even struggle now is like because i feel like i really love this person i love them with my whole heart like and to me like even as an adult like the more and more i get older the more and more i'm like you know what my mom loved me she just didn't know how to love but when i was a kid and a teenager it was like i love this woman this woman doesn't love me this woman loves substances over me like why what have I done wrong to not deserve your love you know like and so like I said now as an adult I can look back and be like well she did love me but she just didn't know how she didn't even know how to love herself you know yeah. like she had bipolar um, and anxiety and depression and you know and she had a lot of childhood trauma and none of that was like really treated I mean some of it but even then I don't think she, even then I don't think she was like wholeheartedly in it you get what I'm saying like because I remember her going to rehab and like going to like the you know the mental health ward but like I don't I don't believe it was always so treated and I think you know she was really like demonized um by families and then like I said being in the con- conservative community that a lot of people just didn't understand Mm
0: -hmm. and I think like one I one I'm sorry about the set of circumstances you had growing up um and two I'm sorry you lost your mom I know that that's like probably a really like defining moment in your life and like you look back on that time it's like and I also I'm really big on like formative moments and moments in your life and i want to know how much weight you hold or how much it meant to you i forget what the guy was it mr morris the therapist down the street yeah 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 do you think think him like intervening and interjecting himself in in your life like do you think if he hadn't done that that you might have gone down a different path does that hold weight to you um because i feel like uh uh-huh
1: I think so. Like, I also feel like it was kind of a scary experience because, like, Mr. Moore was very intimidating. Um, he was a very intimidating man. Um, and, like, I mean, he would be straightforward um, in our sessions, but sometimes it would almost be too forward that, it, like, him being blunt was almost coming off disrespectful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, like, the NDMR, I think, helped a lot, but it also terror, ter- terrified me. And, like, even to this day, I know people are always like, you should go back and do it to help with this trauma because you still, you know, you've had new trauma since, you know, your childhood, Um, especially with like being in a domestic violence relationship for a year and things like that. But it was so exhausting and it was so exhausting. And I think he was just so intimidating. Um, Like I said, I think he helped me a lot. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not shitting on him at all. I'm just saying like, It was just very intimidating to talk about like different abuses. I went through with this man. And then, like I said, sometimes he would be so honest, it would almost be like disrespectful and then EMDR is like, I feel like a very intense um, A very intense type of therapy. Okay. Like you can't just like fuck around with it and you can't have someone that doesn't know what they're doing. And, and it's, it's very exhausting. And I remember like doing it over and over and like getting better about some stuff, but still feeling like exhausted afterwards. And so like, like I said, those things were good, but they also had like a little bit of negativity. Right. But I mean, that's life though. I think you can have like good moments with the negative, you know, like that's just what it is. Nothing is going to be, forever perfect or forever one, one one-sided, you know? Mm -hmm. Two
0: things I thought of, um, well, actually, well, I don't know how many things it is, Um, but I, I realized that you've been using the term EMDR a lot and like, I, I know what that is because I work in our field, but for anybody that doesn't, just to put it plainly, it's a very like specific type of therapy. It's trauma focused. Um, and it's kind of like mind and body and it's very thorough and it's like very regimented. And it's a very difficult thing for people, uh, that have experienced trauma to grow, go through because it's very like mentally. And I would probably say physically demanding. Um, and it can be very scary because you have to address the trauma directly, like unfiltered. Um, for example, if you, Ah, I don't need to give examples, but like, it's very specific, very, very detailed. And you can't like, like, for example, like if, uh, like, if a kid, like if a kid was processing sexual assault,
1: the kid,
0: the kid couldn't say like, he touched me in my privates, like it would be, he he touched me in my penis, you have to be very unfiltered about how you go about talking about it. Do you have any other thoughts about what I'm saying about? Yeah. 100%.
1: 100%. So with EMDR is like you literally have to go to that point in your mind and relive that event of the trauma over again. And you have to like have your physical body focused on like sounds, touch, vision, all of that. Like, cause the, it's called, you know, the eye rapid movement part. Like I was, I remember like staring at the screen, looking for these dots, holding on to these knobs, having this like headphone in. And then, like I said, also not only am i focused on that i'm focused on that memory and that memory is like very uncomfortable and you know i'm having like a panic attack while focusing on it but it's supposed to like help you get to the point where you can think about it and you don't have you know that that strong hold that strong connection to it but it was just you know for me it was it was it was it was emotionally physically very rough i'm i'm glad i did it i'm glad i experienced it because i think that did like really get my shit into gear um especially since like i said you know i was going untreated i was having panic attacks where it was like affecting my whole body where i felt like i couldn't walk i couldn't move Mm -hmm. you know i was i was like sleepless i it my my teenage years i would never i would fucking never go back to like how i am now and the anxiety i have now i would rather deal with it now than than back then like that's how bad it was um But yeah, so it was just, you know, like, and like you're saying, imagine being a victim of sexual assault, which I am. And that was one of the memories I was processing to have to like be in that headspace, And you're doing this for like an hour, right? Cause that's how most in DMR sessions are like anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. So you're doing this and then I'm doing this at least like an hour once a week for multiple fucking weeks. Like it's just exhausting and, and 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 like in that hour you can go through it multiple times it's not mm-hmm. just do it once it's it's multiple it's because then you do it they stop what's your anxiety level okay take deep breath let's do it again you know like it's, it's very re-
0: it's very very regimented
1: yeah and um
0: i i one, like, I love you for coming on, Naomi. And I love, this isn't the end by any means. Uh, okay. I just want to take a second. Um,
1: like, Let's burn this shit up.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Naomi. I got shit to do. Uh, no.
1: <laughs> uh, like I, just,
0: I just want to take a second because we've, we've covered a lot. And it's a lot of, um, I want to say, heavy material. And it's very personal to you. And you spoke about it very candidly. And I appreciate you doing that. Um, and something that like, even before we started this podcast, I'm going to toot your horn here. So be ready. When you sent me your five, when you sent me your five words, I read them. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But a word I would add, and you, you mentioned it earlier is resilient. Knowing the circumstances you've gone through, you're like one of the most resilient people I know. And I think that you, um, I don't know. I just want to say that to you because sometimes people don't say things out loud uh, that they think. And I wanted to say that to you. you. Uh, but another thing, um, when I was thinking about, I keep fucking forgetting his name, Mr. Morris or Mr. Moore.
1: Mr. Moore, M O R E. The
0: kind of the kind of one of the themes of this podcast in general that I'm doing is to have people say out loud things that is aren't normally said out loud, and for people to hear it and then make them feel more connected, and then encourage other people to say things out loud. Um, what I thought of when you're talking about Mr. Moore and like that you do you do find it significant that he like reached out and intervened but at the same time it like you were kind of describing it wasn't a good fit he was very direct and like it just isn't it didn't really work out the way like it could have it it made me think that like it's still important like if you're going through something um, or you've experienced something to like still seek treatment like say things out loud tell people what you're going to don't internalize it because even if you like say it out loud and then you start to get treatment like like you said like it wasn't a good fit right but you had started that process and then it turned into you trying an ssri and like you did this and this and this but you start you got that ball rolling so for anyone okay. listening like i know it can be a daunting task to like reach out to somebody or start that process but as soon as you like flip the switch and you get it going that's gonna like, that's gonna result in you um, getting hopefully to a position that you can like uh, treat whatever it is that you're going through. Um, But I want to, we got like maybe 15, 20 minutes here, Naomi. Um, uh, uh, But like you mentioned, you mentioned being a survivor of sexual assault. I I want you to like talk as much or as little about that as you want, or if you feel like you've talked enough about it by all means. Um, And for anybody that's listening, if you have experienced uh, something like that, like this is uh, a a trigger warning. um, And I want to like just say like, I don't know how far extensive Naomi's going to want to talk about this, um, but just be aware. Don't worry, I won't
1: get into the nitty gritty.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So um, just speak to that, like how it's affected you um, as much or as little as you'd like. Yeah. So
1: I'm a sexual assault survivor. Um, The First time I was assaulted was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was living with my mom, I was 12, was by her boyfriend on my birthday. So now I hate my birthdays just because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I went to college, I was, um, sexually assaulted in college. There was like, I was drunk. I was saying no, whatever happens. And then, um, I was in a domestic violence relationship where he not only, you know, emotionally, verbally, financially, and physically abused me. He also sexually abused me. And then, um, you know, even as an adult in recent years, um, I've been sexually assaulted, you know, like, and you would think like, oh yeah, like that's not going to happen to you. Like after this happens. And like, I always like, I don't feel, I don't feel embarrassed talking about it. I get mad because people are like, well, you've been sexually assaulted like more than three times in your life. Like maybe you're just lying, or maybe it's something you're doing. And it's like no. Like having learned about it, doing therapy. Like the people that perpetrate that do these things, they can sense when someone has been assaulted, right? They can sense that because they can sense that that person's having those flight or fleet moments, but doesn't really know what to do because they're you know they're either frozen or they're like fleeing away right because like we're used to this and we're not used to this but like this is something that's familiar that we felt before so then we're like like I said like I mean even in my adulthood like since I like uh left my ex and you know left college and got my master's like I went on a date with this guy from tinder and he assaulted me and then I got assaulted in an uber um Car ride home on my birthday in Memphis like two years ago. So, like, this shit happens. Unfortunately, it's not like I'm not choosing. It's not like I'm not fighting back. But I also know, like, when I have fought back, then, like, they've not only assaulted me physically, sexually, but then physically as well. And, like, unfortunately, like, this is just something that happens. And, like, it's not like I was asking for it. It's not like when I went on this date with this person for the first time, like, you know, I knew this was going to happen or I dressed like this or like when I was in the Uber car, like, or when I was dating that person or like as a kid, this is something that I never asked for. It's just something I've experienced. And this is just a part of my journey. And though it sucks, it sucks being a survivor. I'm glad that I have survived. Like, and I'm glad that I've been able to, you know, talk about this with other people have been able to um, do presentations. And stuff like that um, at SIUE, my alm- alma mater for my undergrad. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm glad I've been able to raise awareness with um, my trials and tribulations, just because I think it's something important. And I, and I, I feel like when you're, it's this. A, this is not really talked about, but in education, when they are talking about it in college, like in, you know, like if you're doing psychology, sociology, therapy, whatever, in these courses, when they talk about abuse and trauma, I feel like they don't really talk about how people that experience this once are more likely to be re-abused and re-experience it, you know, um, and like I said, I had to go to therapy, like I, and with therapy, like I had to find a couple different therapists before I finally found the one that I was like, this is it, like this shoe fits, Shout out to my therapist, Laura Holt. She's the fucking best. But, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I had to redo it and, like, going to therapy, working through it, doing my like CBT stuff. And then, um, you know, like I said, like, you know, she brought information to me that, like, like I said, this is not normally discussed. Like, people think, like, you just get raped one time and that's it and then you're done. And it's like, but that's not always the case. Like, this can continuously happen to people. Like, I've known other people in my life, um, friends, family, etc., that, you know, they've been victims of sexual assault and it's happened more than once to them. So I, I just believe there's probably is more research out there than what there was like 10 years ago, but I feel like there's still not enough. And like I said, I feel like this is a big caveat that's not being taught in these courses that like this can happen again. And like I said, and I, and I just feel like having been a survivor of it, you know, like I said, I get so pissed off and like people blame me and try to be like, you're doing something to cause this to happen. It's like, no, I'm not like, yeah. like I said, like my, me and my therapist talking, like hers it's breaking that shit down. Like these perpetrators that are going out and doing this stuff can identify when people have, like, I don't, I don't know if it's like, they can smell blood. Like, I don't know. Like, but, but, but for some reason, like that i believe that's true like i really do believe that they can sense you know what i'm saying
0: yeah it's like sharks uh, with blood and water like they just have a, a sense and it's something that like maybe hasn't been studied enough and we don't have the entire rationale for but like just because we don't have rationale for something doesn't mean that we have to make meaning about it in a way that doesn't even make sense where they're saying that like you're doing something yourself to make this happen right um and i um I had some thoughts when you were speaking about that. um, And it was regarding, you had mentioned being in a relationship and you listed off like various types of abuse that you had undergone. Uh, Just very, very quickly, like how long were you in the relationship?
1: I was in the relationship for a year and I was like 20, 21, which I found out doing like taking classes and then doing my own research, the likelihood for like women to experience like um, IPV or domestic violence is typically between the ages of 14 and 26. So I was very much in that, that age group, like the one that was like more likely. Right. And I'm, and like, they, they, what is it? I think they've come up with statistics that at least like one fourth of women experience it in their lifetime. If not more, that's just reported cases. Right. So it makes sense that like, if the statistics are so high, Right. And, like, I grew up and I seen, you know, other people around me in abusive relationships. Like, my mom used to beat the shit out of my dad. My dad never beat her, thank God. But my mom would beat the shit out of him. And then my mom had boyfriends that beat the shit out of her. And then I had an older sister that was in a, you know, a relationship where the guy did the same thing. It makes sense that, like, I'm seeing all this stuff that then, because of my environment, my nature and nurturing all of that, all of that stuff, then gets stuck in here. And it makes sense that like, oh, why would I would date someone that would do the same thing. Because like, mm-hmm. I've seen it, it was normalized. And like, I'm not, I'm not saying like, go be in an abusive relationship if you've seen it or if you experience experienced it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it makes sense for me why I was more likely to end up in that. You get what I'm saying? Totally. It makes total, total sense. Um
0: And I I have two thoughts. Well, one's a question and one is a thought. Um, I I don't know whether I would attribute it to like mental health in 2021 starting to be more and more destigmatized or if I would attribute it to like what I do for a living or maybe it's both. I don't really know, but I know that in recent memory, more and more people that I know personally, females that I know personally, I'm finding at some point in their life have been sexually assaulted and uh I think that you sharing is brave and thank you. And I I learned yesterday, and uh everybody learned listening to this that you you speak publicly about it, and I think that's a really great thing. Um, but I, I don't really know what is attributing to me finding this more and more out, but it, it's definitely a phenomenon and a problem that like I'm realizing I think you said one in four uh
1: if not higher, right? It's
0: probably higher. That is what I'm getting. Like, it's probably higher. And that's a fucking horrific uh, realization. 20,
1: 2019, the CDC did a research finding, right? They found, they did some research and in their research, they found this, that the women that had died, like had been murdered. 50, 55% of the women that had been murdered in the US that year was related to domestic violence. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Uh, wh- yeah, and that's, That's crazy.
1: That that is crazy to me. And 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 I feel like society doesn't do enough. I feel like society likes to blame the the victim that's involved in these cases and and just and put it on them, right? Like and, and domestic violence doesn't just happen to women. I mean it's happening to men, it's happening to the LGBT community, especially our trans women. Like this is happening all across the board and instead of having more programs that's for you know these victims and survivors to get assistance and then also more programs that can help with rehabilitating these people that are being the abuser we're not doing anything about it and it's like what the fuck and then they're like i don't know why murders keep going up i don't know why stuff keeps happening i'm like because you guys are not funding anything you're not doing anything and then when this is brought up in the news the first thing people do is blame these survivors these victims when i left my ex, I had to go to court five times to get a restraining order against him because he refused to show up except for the fifth time. And the court kept allowing it. They kept saying, well, he needs to speak his side. He needs to speak his view. He needs to have his thing. And I'm all for that. But I had pictures of of the abuse that he had done to me, like the marks and scars that I still have now. I had witnesses for when he had choked me in public Okay. I had text messages. I had Facebook messages. I had to change my phone number. Everything. I had I and I had also um pictures of property damage he had done. I had all of this evidence stacked the fuck up. And and because he was a white male and because our legal systems favors white males and like I said, they're not their legal system is really not for the victims, the survivors. Like he, like I said, kept getting passes because I've worked with other clients and and have tried to help them get order protections. And it's a long process. And I've, and when it comes to clients that have been gay or of some other sexuality, man, it's even longer, if not impossible for them to get order protections. It's just crazy. Like, it's just crazy how that works. And that's my huge, like passionate caveat that like, there just needs to be more done. In this because it's affecting everybody and this is a systemic issue that is not going away anytime soon
0: yeah it's this it's a super arduous process and it seems like they err on the side of like trying to hear both sides out when really they could kind of err on the side of like this is the person that's like presenting this and they have and like you said you had pictures and you had this and you had that and it feels like they could kind of lean that way and then if they needed to like if they needed to like hear him out and then like some other evidence came up and great, but I definitely think there's too many fucking hoops to jump through. And I, I agree with you on that. Um, I have one last question for you and well, actually one last question kind of regarding this topic. And then I wanted to end on something a little lighter and then we'll, uh, we'll be on our merry way. Uh, but you had mentioned you were in the relationship for a year and I, in my work, I've, I've worked with domestic violence and intimate partner violence, sexual abuse victims, um, frequently females, females, most of the time. In my experience, I've worked with like single moms and stuff that have undergone that. and I'll have these sessions with people. And I want, I want you to like not only educate the listeners, but maybe you can provide some insight for me too. Okay. So I, I can like, I can do all the, the, the micro skills that I know in therapy and I can talk to these women um, most of the time women in my personal experience working with them about like, and we can talk about what's going on logically, right? Like, like, yeah, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. And like, they can, it's a super logical thought process. And they're, they have an awareness that they should not be in the relationship. They shouldn't uh, allow this person to be in their life. But then like, it's like a cycle. And then I know, and then it's, what I'm describing, I'm not doing a very good job, is that it seems to be like a very hard situation to separate yourself from and to get yeah. out of. And my question for you is, can you provide insight into why that may be? And is it like, is it rooted in fear or what would you attribute that to?
1: So I, I think taking classes, studying, done research and then experiencing it, um, there's very much like a cycle of use that happens Um, having done research as well, research will tell us that stalking is very much something that occurs within (laughs) IPV. Um, it's very much parallel to it. Um, the the user is most likely to stalk that person, even when they're trying to leave. Um, I've done research, I've, I've found research and even like some of the bigger, uh, Known people in like the domestic violence world will even say like the average person will go back at least seven times before they finally leave. And like, for me, it was hard leaving because like, A, when I did try to leave him, the, and I because I tried leaving this person multiple times before the court got involved, right? The reason why the court got involved was I couldn't take it anymore, right? And like, I didn't even press charges on him because... How shitty the cops were to me. So, didn't even do it. Um, that's that. That's a whole nother whatever. Anyways, um, but for me, like every time I would try to leave him, he would come running back. He, he would come stalking back. Or then he would put threats or he would do things that would make me very scared to leave him. He even posted nudes of me on the internet, you know? Um, you know, he threatened to like, send those nudes to my family. You know, he threatened to do a lot of messed up stuff to me if I I didn't go back with him. So a lot of it was fear. A lot of it was too like he had alienated me from, you know, my family and my friends and I felt like he was the only person I had left and I felt like such a piece of shit that I was like who else is going to love me? Who else is going to care about me? This is the only person that cares about me. Maybe I deserve this type of love. I mean, I'm already damaged from all the sexual abuse and physical abuse I faced as my childhood and leading up to this. So, I mean, like I already am damaged. Good. You know, nobody's going to want me. He's right. No one's going to want somebody like this. I have mental health. I have these experiences, like nobody's going to care. And so it was just like a lot of that as well was just like, cause once you get to the point where it's like, they take away your connections, your resources, you feel like you're just trapped, you know, like he would steal my car. It was my fucking car. And he would steal my car, steal my house keys, steal my bus pass. And if I wanted to go to school, I would have to walk eight and a half miles one way and eight and a half miles back. I remember walking that shit in the snow, trying to go to class because I was so serious about getting my bachelor's degree and so serious about getting my education and and it's crazy because people are like that's your car and i'm like yeah i know that's my car but when he's beating my ass and he's taking that stuff like are you okay so he's gonna choke me out okay i'm not even gonna get the, into this fight with him i know what he wants i'm gonna give him that car because i don't want to be choked out today i don't want to have to deal with this shit today so like i said you know and i i believe that's why people struggle to get out is because of the threats of violence the fear And the stalking that happens, like I said, like once you leave that person, you'd be surprised how quickly they pop up, how they're watching you, how they have other people watching you for them, how they're making different profiles on Facebook. Like this person has like over 20 some profiles made on Facebook that I have blocked. And he makes new profiles on Facebook all the time. Um, I believe that he's also like has abused other people besides me. Like, like I said, like, stalking, whether it's in physical form, cyber form, whatever the case may be, it's so big. And so I think that's a big, big reason why it's so hard to leave. And like I said, like, you have nobody else. This is all you're you have right now. So, you know, and then also too, you have to look at the um, parallels and the corv- uh, correlation with um, people that experience domestic violence, IPV, and who also have spouses who are in the military, who are in the law enforcement, who are in the judicial system, politics, um, firefighters, like there's a lot, a lot of DV, IPV that happens in those relationships. And, you know, those people that are experiencing it, they're afraid to leave because if they get an order protection against that person, that person can't use a gun anymore. That like, so when I got my order protection, he couldn't use a gun for three years. So imagine if I'm a wife to a police officer and that's his job and he has to use the, you know, a gun and then I'm leaving him and I get that order of protection, he loses his job. And then what happens to me? Then what happens to me? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, like- imagine us having kids together. I'm not working because he won't let me work. I leave him. He can't work. That means nobody has any funds. How is he going to pay child support? How is he going to, how is he going to support me and these kids in the divorce? You know, like there's there's a lot a lot of equations to it. Um, so it's it's not just as black as white. People are like, he should have just left, and I'm like, yeah, man, yeah, easy. It's not yeah. if it was that fucking easy, then this shit wouldn't happen all the time. I'll tell you that much. If it was no, no. that easy, these relationships wouldn't last as long. It wouldn't happen like.
0: Thank I you like, out
1: life.
0: thank you a million times over for explaining that, especially the way you just did. Like, and I, that's what I was going to get at. Like, I think that a lot of people look at it like, why the fuck don't they just walk out the door and like go get their own place. And like, it's not that fucking easy, especially in 2021 with all the social media accounts that you're talking about and the psychological warfare that can happen like that. And when I was listening to you describe it, I was thinking about it like kind of, I, I went into this like symbolic way of thinking about it. And it was like what you were describing it, it, the way I was receiving it, it sounded like it was a super lonely place that you're in when you're going through that. And it reminded me of like, you're in this fucking deep, just murky, muddy fucking hole wall where, where all this shit's happening to you. And you know, you know, it's happening to you and it's fucking terrible. And you know, at the top of the, the top of the hole, it's like quote unquote normal. And like, you know that like, If you get up there, then like there's better things ahead. But by the time you get up there, you're muddy and you're fucking you're you're bruised and battered. And and like you were saying, like, who would want me at that point? And you just decide to stay fucking down there. And and it's because it's like you're comfortable in what's like comfortable at that time, which is being abused. And like you said, like, it's easier to just like not even confront it, because then if you confront it, then who knows what the fuck's going to happen. So, Naomi, thank you for sharing that um and honestly like educating me and probably educating our listeners um so thank you um i we're we're coming up on like a little over an hour i think we're like hour 15 or something like that i want to ask you a very important question i uh i noticed on your facebook you had your cover photo is the bernie sanders uh sitting with his coat and the gloves and um I want to know, one, what was your favorite Bernie Sanders meme during that day or that week? And two, will will there be a better meme in 2021?
1: Okay. First and foremost, probably one of my favorite ones of him in the chair was probably <laughs> when it was like, oh my God. And it was like waiting for, <laughs> sitting alone at the table, waiting for your friends to come. And I was like, yeah, I've been there so many times. But there were just so many good ones like there was like you voted for these people like and i was just like ah. Oh. like it it was so good but when i seen him sitting in this old style like wicker chair with like that's like famous in like the 70s photos because it looks very much like a like a crown seat you know and like yeah. everybody's parents took pictures of that in the 70s i was like this is it for me this is this is right do i think there will be a better mean uh yeah i think so like i think memes are always developing I would love to be a meme sometime like that's just funny to me I think I think there will always be something going on um but I definitely think it'll hold its little like torch I think it'll definitely be like one that goes down in meme
0: history I think so too like it'll be like you know I remember the old DH1 like countdowns and like the best ofs and all that of like the music industry I think that eventually like 2040 or something we're gonna have like the best memes of the 2000 2000s, 2010s tens two thousand And I think it's gonna, it, it's going to withstand the test of time. I do. Um, my personal favorite was, uh, when somebody, the internet's like the most wonderful place that's going to like kill us all basically. But like, while it's happening, we're going to be able to like, enjoy it. Uh, somebody like superimposed the Bernie Sanders going like this with the gloves, uh, over patrick swayze in the movie Ghost, where it's like a really sensual like oh, oh, uh right. scene with uh i can't think of the word when you're the pottery like what's it called yeah, when yeah. you're doing the like spinning it's just i don't hot. know what it, pottery. Ain't gotta yeah, yeah yeah but we ain't yeah ain't it's, doing,
1: it's we, ain't, we ain't doing all that
0: bernie sanders has his arms around demi moore and it's like super sexual and like I just, if you haven't seen it, Google it, use the internet, look it up. It's a really splendid situation. Um, Naomi, we're kind of at the end of our our time here and I don't want it to feel like I I went straight from you sharing everything you shared to like a super light topic. So do you have any thoughts about any final thoughts about what we were talking about or any final thoughts in general, before we end this thing?
1: Self-care is really important y'all. Like I said, in order to be able to be, you know, and and working in a field that can be re-triggering and have a lot of its trauma its own. I got to have boundaries uh, and I got to recognize those. I got to really put them down and enforce them. I got to recognize my biases and work through that shit. Um, Therapy is great. Like I said, it's like kissing a toad, you know, maybe a couple times and then, you know, like then you'll find that Prince Charming, whatever um self-care is a big thing when you're not in therapy and if you're not taking medication or whatever doing things that's going to recharge you make you feel good I love getting my nails done okay this shit's popping all the time like I I love taking bubble baths I like walking I like cuddling with Hazel um you know <laughs> things like that like I I make a big self sorry Hazel to wake you up I make a big self-care list, you know, and I do those things because I know it's going to make me feel good and I know it's going to help me out. So just remember that healing takes time. You're, you're not on any, you know, like time span, you do it within your own time and to give yourself love. And like I said, put in boundaries and do self-care.
0: Hell yeah. And last thought that I have and last thing we'll talk about, I want you to talk directly to our St. Louis peeps. Where should people eat?
1: Okay. First and foremost, let's talk about, it. let's get into it. If you like a good deli sandwich, Blue City Deli, that's, that's okay. They got this one called the Big Tommy. Delicious. You like Mexican food? I got three top-notch places. Um, Dos Reyes on Hampton. Beautiful. They got this corn um, elote. It's, oh my God. Um Let's see, taco and ice cream joint on Cherokee. They have so many different ice cream flavors, so good. They have $1 tacos on Tuesdays. They have great margaritas. They got these street fries out of this world. Tower Tacos has the best mole sauce in the whole city. Um, If you like some some burgers, some greasy ass burger, go to the dam, you're not gonna be disappointed. Our um, City Park Grill, Um, let's see. If you like ice cream, Clementine's is where that shit is at. Woo,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, take my body, Lord, every time I go there. Uh, Sushi AI, best all-you-can-eat sushi specials on Sundays. It's $30 for two people. And um, ours, just $15 if you're by yourself. And then they have the lunch special every day and the evening special, all-you-can-eat. $12.99, $15.99, $12.99, $15.99, okay? I'm done. I'm out. I, <laughs> I, I gonna, gave yeah, y'all talk- this talk- good-ass food.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't say don't say that this podcast didn't give you anything, okay? Because we just right. got you all the places to eat. If yeah, y'all right,
1: than a Snickers, that ain't me. That wasn't <laughs> me.
0: My- uh, thanks for coming on, dude. Um, it's like almost 12 o'clock. It's Sunday. Go enjoy your day. Um, oh, yeah. Appreciate I'll talk to you soon, okay?
1: Okay. Love you.